today, the scripture reading is from Luke 1, 46 to 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. I know some of you may be thinking, isn't he going through Luke, and didn't we do that about a year and a half ago? But uh, I wanted to take a look at this, because often we think about Christmas carols when we think about Christmas, just like the songs we just sung, and go ahead and share with your neighbor what what your favorite Christmas carol is. Go ahead, tell them. Did anyone say Santa Baby? Because if anyone says Santa Baby, we're going to have to talk about that in terms of a definition of a Christmas carol, you know. Don't be shy, though. If you really did, just admit it. We'll just talk afterwards. The scripture that was just shared with you, um, it's often overlooked as a Christmas carol, yet uh, it was composed by this pregnant Jewish teenager named Mary over 2,000 years ago. And, and so when she visited her cousin Elizabeth, Elizabeth spoke a blessing to Mary because she was carrying the Messiah. She was carrying Jesus in her womb. And then she spoke these really profound words. She responded with these really profound words. And what I'd like us to do uh, is to take a look at this song of Mary's, the, the song that came out of Jesus' mother's heart. This is, this is what came out of her heart when, when she was blessed by Elizabeth. And, and, and again, I, I know I, I taught about this, but... Back when I taught it, I, I kind of combined it with some other biblical texts, and I really only spent about 15 minutes going through Mary's song. So um, this morning we're going to go into it for about 15 hours, and uh, you know I can do that too, but uh, we, we're not going to do that. But we're just going to take this morning to, to just talk about her song. Now, some of you may know this song as the Magnificat, because in Latin, the translation from uh, magnify is Magnificat, and uh, some tidbit that you might not know about this is back in the 80s, which, by the way, is like the greatest era of fashion and music, by the way. But back in the 80s, Mary's song was banned in Guatemala. Did you know that? That her song was actually banned in this country, in Guatemala. And it was forbidden, it was illegal to publicly recite these words to her song. Now, why is that? Because these words empower the weak. These words reverse what we in the world, what we in our society, in our flesh, think is powerful. And it, and it changes everything. It puts everything upside down and on its head. And, and so the government was afraid of a revolution. They were afraid of a rebellion by the people that they were oppressing. They were oppressing all these people. And that the hopeless would discover hope. In, in her words and recognize that, that God was indeed for them and they were afraid that they were going to lose power so they just forbade reciting this in any public arena. Let me read this to you once again and think about why people in power would not want you to hear this. 
My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our father, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is a Christmas carol composed by Jesus' mother. And so you see why the Guatemalan government feared feared these words that there were many who were poor, there were many who were oppressed, there were many who were hungry without help. So you can imagine how those in power felt when they were empowered. Well, now that you kind of have an idea about that, transplant that same fear and that same threat back to those in power in Jesus' day. Because who was in power back then? Yes, Rome. And who did Rome place there? Herod, right? A king named Herod. Now there were other Herods there, but but at the time that Mary spoke these words, and this is in reference to Herod the Great. Herod the Great. Now I want to give you some background on Herod the Great because I think it's going to be helpful to see and feel what Jesus and the gospel were up against. Now they were up against a really paranoid and a really powerful man. And we actually know quite a lot about Herod because historians have recorded many things about him, uh, namely a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. Now Herod the Great's title was received from the Roman Senate. The Roman Senate, three decades before Mary spoke these words, titled Herod, Herod King of the Jews. And they gave him that title. And it wasn't a title that was just given to him. Herod actually was quite a politician. He was quite a tactician. He was quite a strategist. He knew who to align himself to, when to align himself to. And he first started with Julius Caesar because Julius Caesar was in power. And so he started with Julius Caesar, but then Julius Caesar was assassinated. So what did he do? He jumped ship and he went over to Mark Anthony. And not Mark Anthony the singer because Jennifer Lopez has more power than he does. But... After that, he jumped shipped over to Caesar Augustus because Caesar Augustus overthrew Mark Anthony. So he jumped over to Caesar Augustus' boat and he knew what he was doing. Right? He just kind of went from leader to leader, knowing who to align himself with. This is a really smart man who, who just kind of moved his allegiances to wherever the power was and that's where he went. He also moved allegiances really easily within marriage. There's a debate as to how many women he married. It's between 10 and 12, somewhere in there. And he had over 40 children. And most of those marriages, if not all of those marriages, they were political moves. Kind of like how, you know, one prince in one country and one princess in another country and they want to have some treaty or some alliance or something like that and they marry. This is, this is Herod. He's kind of trying to figure out how am I going to move up this, this power scale? How am I going to grow my power and my influence? I'm going to marry this person. I'm going to marry that person. I'm going to marry this person. And so it, it's just kind of growing and growing. And actually out of all the women that he married, it said that he loved one by the ma- name of Mary Omni I, the first, because there were more than one Mary Omni's. There were two. 
And he was completely obsessed with her. He was so obsessed with her. He was such a control freak. He was so possessive. Any of you women date guys like this? It's scary. Run. And so he's so possessive. And, and even though she had many children with this guy, I think it said that she had five of them. Was it seven? Five. Five or seven. And so even though he had children with her, he didn't trust her. And even though he loved her so deeply, he didn't trust her. What did he do? He killed her. He killed her. Because whenever he felt threatened by someone, he would just kill them. And not only that, he killed Mariamne's mother, his mother-in-law. Some of you understand this. You're like, yeah, I killed my mother. He actually did it though. Like, he, you know, he wasn't just thinking about it. He actually did it. And then he also had two of his sons that he had from her killed because he, he thought that these guys are going to be a threat to me. And so he had them kill. He killed his own sons. He killed his own wife. He killed his mother-in-law. And, and so he, he just felt threatened by them. He also killed another son by another woman that he felt threatened by. He, he threw this kid in jail. And so he's on his deathbed. He's on his deathbed. He's dying. And he has one of his sons locked up because he was threatened by this son. And while he is dying, the son tries to bribe one of the guards to let him out. Like, hey, you know, my dad's dying. Why don't you just let me out? You know, The guard goes and tells Herod. Herod kills that son. And it's five days before he himself dies. That's Herod the Great. I'm not making any of this up. You can read this in history. I'm not, I, I can't write this up. This is too good like this is real right and so he has such a ego he has such a possessiveness of power and afraid and and he's afraid of being threatened he has such a huge ego guess who named him Herod the Great he named himself Herod the Great I'm Herod the Great I mean, th- this guy's full of it right so this is Herod and he wanted everyone to know who he was, that he was in power, that he was, that he, he was you know, just a popular guy. He had everything. And so one of the ways that he did this was that he had these really awesome building projects going on. We're going to be going to Israel in June, and you're going to see some of the remnants of the things that Herod built back then. Even though Rome came and destroyed everything, some of this stuff is still there. For example, the the second temple in Jerusalem, the remnants of that temple are still there. The Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, is still there. You guys see people going there to pray all the time? That's a remnant of Herod the Great's work. We're going to be going to Caesarea, where where he built this awesome port in in terms of engineering and design that was way before his time. And this huge amphitheater where they used to host, host races and things like that. And they used to have war games in there. They could bring water from the Mediterranean and flood the stadium. And then they would put boats in there and fight each other. This is Herod the Great's work. This guy's awesome in terms of what he's built. Masada. Have you guys heard of Masada? He built that. That fortress, he built that. And so, so this guy is, is, is really well known throughout the, the modern world that, that he didn't build it himself. I mean, that would have been pretty awesome. He, he, he built this on the backs of slaves, on the backs of people that he oppressed, on, on people that he taxed heavily, and people that he took advantage of. It's not that much different today, is it? People who are powerful who are taking advantage of the poor through politics, through taxation, through labor, whatever. It happens in our world. It's the same thing back then. He was doing the same thing. 
And a last tidbit about Herod to show you how paranoid and sick this guy was. While he was dying, right? While he was dying on that deathbed, he knew that Israel would party when he died. Because they did not like this guy. This guy was was a horrible, horrible man to them. They loved him in terms of like, oh yeah, he rebuilt the second temple. Again, a political move, right? He didn't do it because like he wanted to glorify God or something. He's doing it as a political move. But they also hated this guy because of how oppressive he was. And he knew that people were going to party when he died. But he wanted people to grieve. He wanted people to be sad when he died. So what he did was he rounded up dozens, historians say 70, of Israel's most distinguished men. Israel's most distinguished leaders. He gathered these men and he brought them to Jericho. And his order was, when I die, you kill all those men. So that Israel will mourn that day on my death. Because you will kill all these men. And so he ordered his, his sister and his son to carry out these orders. Fortunately, they didn't carry out these orders. But that was his order. That is what he wanted. And that was what's supposed to happen. But she didn't carry it out and his son didn't carry it out. But that's how sick this guy's mind was. This is, this is, how, this is the, the power guy. That's Herod the Great. This is the king of the Jews who was in power when Mary said those words to the Magnificat. Now Herod knew how power worked, right? Herod knew politics. He watched people rise and fall. He watched leaders come and go. He, he, he was there when Jesus' birth arrival was announced. And Matthew records this for us in his second chapter of Matthew in his gospel that these wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now people have made these stories up about there were three wise men and some people are saying they're from Persia and things like that. But nowhere in the Bible do you see three, do you? It just says wise men. And also they say they're from Persia, but I think they're from China. Because it says wise men, so that's what I think. But where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That's what they come to say. And, and so you remember that that was Herod's title. So these guys are coming and they're saying, where is he named king of the Jews? And, t- and Herod's saying like, that's me. What are you talking about? Where is he? I'm right in front of you. What do you mean? And so you can see his hackles coming up. And you can see that this guy who is so threatened by people about his own power and his own position, you can see him just getting worked up. I will kill my own wife and my mother-in-law and my three sons for what you're saying. And so you can see him just kind of getting so paranoid and worked up and building up here. And so... This power-hungry, paranoid man like Herod. This is a huge threat. And this is what Matthew records for us in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Yes, he was. And all Jerusalem with him. Yes, they were. Because if Herod's in trouble, all of Jerusalem's in trouble. No one is safe. If you lift a finger right now on Herod to say like, Haha, you're not Herod, king of the... You are dead. All of Jerusalem is troubled. Because this is happening. Right? So let's read Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. 
Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Do you see what he did? Genocide. Wipe them all out. And when Mary sang her song in Luke chapter 1, verses 51 through 53, this is what she's saying. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And it was Herod who was the one in power. And she was singing these things. And if he knew what she said, what do you think he would have done to her? So the things that Mary said, the things that Mary composed, those aren't words that people in power like. They don't like when you say things like this. Right? Those words are the types of words that can get you killed. But she understood who was in her womb. She understood that she was carrying the Messiah. And I think Herod did also. I think Herod knew that's why he wiped them all out. He, he called all, all the wise men in and said, like, what's this prophecy that this guy's talking about? He heard these things and he's saying, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm just going to kill everyone that's under two years old. That's a male in Bethlehem and that should take care of it. But while Herod saw a threat, Mary saw something different. Mary saw hope. Herod saw fear. Mary saw a Savior who strengthens the weak and provides hope for those in despair. Herod saw someone who was more powerful than him, and he was going to do everything in his power to take him out, including the genocide of baby boys, of infant boys, of toddler boys. He's going to wipe them all out. And so you see how those in power like Herod are, are threatened by the gospel, that they're threatened by words like this in Mary's song. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. You see the story of Christmas is how God reverses everything. Jesus is born and God reverses everything. The way that we see things is totally different because the way that the world typically sees things and the people that are inside of their flesh typically is on this hierarchy of things and Jesus and God just kind of flip all that over. And the world makes judgments on who comes in first and who comes in last, who's on the inside and who's on the outside. And the world makes judgments on who is blessed, right? Who is blessed based on beauty, based on riches, based on success, based on ambition, based on education, security, ability, intelligence, based on these things. This is how Herod approached things. How am I going to align myself? Who am I going to marry? Who do I need to kill? Who do I need to operate? How do I need to operate in order to get what I want? This is how the world approaches things. But what Mary was essentially singing about is how God just turns all of that thought and ideology and he just kind of flips it on its head and he says that's not how I work Mary's son Jesus 
will later teach in Luke chapter 6, or actually earlier for us because we've already done this. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. You see how he just starts flipping everything over? And I think part of what Jesus learned can be attributed back to his mom. It wasn't like Jesus was born, like Jesus was born, and, and he's crying and stuff like that. And he's like, by the way, I know everything. And he just starts talking and he starts prophesying and saying like, hey, by the way, you know what I can do? I can walk on water and I can... I don't think Jesus was born. That would be a really freaky baby. Right? I think it was normal. He was born. He was cried. He needed his diapers changed. He cried. He had owies. And you know, all this kind of things like that. These type of things happen with Jesus. And as he's growing up, things are being revealed to him and he's learning and, he, and he's understanding and he's picking up on who he really is. But I'm pretty sure that she told Jesus as a baby, as a toddler, as a little boy, as, uh, as a boy growing up, that she taught him about God and how God worked in her own life. Like, did you know I, that the Holy Spirit impregnated uh, or, or I had a conception, I had a miraculous conception inside of me and that's how you were born? And um, and your dad, we were betrothed, um, and, and he could have actually called the, the village to kill me because that's a capital offense to, to, be, to be pregnant without you know, a husband, and that could have happened. And, and so she, he, she was just telling him how God was so gracious and merciful and about the angel and all this stuff and taught him how God worked in the Scriptures and, and read to him the Scriptures. Again, yes, Jesus is God. I'm not saying that He's not. And I, I believe he eventually knew everything that was taught in the scriptures. But as a baby and as a toddler and as a young boy, I think he was learning. And one of those instrumental teachers in his life was his mom. That he heard the same promises of how God works through a human voice, human voices. And one of those was coming from the loving voice of a mother. Just showering her, her son with the scriptures and telling him the lessons of those things. And any of you who are mothers know how this is. I mean, I as a father, I know this with my own children and, and kind of telling them Bible stories and telling them how God works and what God's done in our life, in my life, in my wife's life, how we do this type of stuff. Now, I don't think what Mary sung about and what Jesus taught about means that all well-to-do people, all rich people are cursed and all under-resourced people and all poor people are blessed. I don't think that's what the teaching is. God is a God of justice. And God is not going to stand by forever not doing anything for those who are mistreated. There's a time where that's happening. But He's not going to stand by forever letting that happen. There will come a time when justice will be served to those who are selfish, to those who are greedy, to those who are violent. There will come a time when the rich who watch the poor die will have to answer for their lack of mercy. There will come a time when the powerful will have to answer for their oppression of the weak. Right? God will not stand silent forever. God is a God of justice. The justice will come. And things have started. 
Jesus' birth, that, that kind of inverted everything. And Christmas, the birth of Jesus, is, is one of those signs that, that God is setting things right. That society doesn't work this way anymore. Well, we're going to flip all that over. And Jesus was the epitome of what's good and what's right. He, he, he's not going to lead a revolution the way most people thought that the Messiah was going to lead a revolution. People back then thought like Messiah is going to come and we are going to overthrow the Roman government. We are going to march to Rome and we are going to send them down. And that's why you had the groups like the Zealots come around. They were ready to fight. They were ready to die. They, they would assassinate Romans in order to get back in power. And most thought that this is how the Messiah was going to come. Herod ruled with fear. Herod ruled with threats and, and with killing people. While Jesus rules with love. Jesus rules with grace. He offered himself as a sacrifice. When would you ever read about Herod doing such a thing? You will be offered as a sacrifice, not me. Herod would kill you. Jesus is saying, I'm going to suffer on your behalf. I'm going to die for you. And while Herod wants more power, he will kill for it. Jesus kind of understands already, I have all the power. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to do anything for that. Except, you can't have a relationship with me, or with my Father, with, with God. Because you're sinful. And my Father is holy. And I have all the power. And because of that, I'm going to die for you. Because I'm worthy to be the mediator between me and my Father. And He'll accept me. But He's not going to accept you because of your sin. Not because of who you are in terms of your heart and that He loves you, but because of your sin, He can't accept that. Now think about this also. How did Jesus arrive on this earth? Luke chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Have you ever really thought about this, laid in a manger? Do you know what a manger is? Because sometimes I think we romanticize the manger, like, oh, the manger, thinking like it's a nice comfy crib or something like that. It's a feeding trough for animals. So have you looked at a feeding trough where you just throw stuff in there and the cows come and they just start eating it and stuff like that? He was laid in a bowl. Right? Like you and I eat out of a cereal bowl, but it's just bigger, right? That's what it is. That's where he was put. And our Lord was born in an animal stable. It wasn't a hospital. It wasn't a nice house with good lighting and comfy sheets and warm blankets. He was born where they put animals. Where do you guys put your animals? That's not a good question for people in the United States because, you know, we... We're obsessed with our animals. They sleep with us and stuff. If you go to most parts of the world, whether it be Africa or Asia, where do animals go? It's cold out there. And it's stinky out there. There's nothing there. And, and that's where he was born. He grew up poor. And this, this was by his design. He designed it like this. Now, if you were God, would you have designed it that way? I know the story and I probably wouldn't design it that way. I would Give me the nice palace. I want all the goodies. I want you to give me all the toys and the rattles and stuff. You know, give me, give me all the good stuff. Wrap me up in something warm. Treat my mom really nice. You know, do all this kind of stuff. But this is not how he came. 
This was his design. He lived out what Mary sung about, what he taught about. He didn't put himself on the top. He was saying those on the top, they're going to be kind of uprooted. He didn't have the best education. He didn't put himself in the Ivy League schools. Right? He didn't put himself in Jerusalem. He put himself out in some ho-dunk town. Some, I don't know, college. I don't want to make fun of any colleges on Christmas, so I'm not going to do... He put himself out in some college out there. Stanford or something. And, um, and he didn't have a place to stay. He didn't have a place to stay. He didn't have a place to lay his head. Remember the guy says, Hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. He says, Foxes have holes and birds have nests. I don't have any place. He didn't have a stable job, did he? He didn't have a stable job. Sometimes you wonder why Jesus like didn't get married or didn't date. I think this is one of the reasons. He doesn't have a stable job. So he was falsely accused. Falsely accused, dealt an unfair trial. He was mocked, he was beaten, he was spit upon. He was punched in the face with a cover on his head so he can't even anticipate. You just kind of get hit. And then he's crucified on the cross. That's his life. How he was born all the way till his death. That was his whole life. After all that, then he emerges victorious from the grave. Right? Easter. Resurrection. And he did it all for us. He did it all for the, the sinful. And it, it's, it's not putting us into any categories at all. It's not saying it's only for the poor. It was for the poor and the rich. It's for everyone who's sinful, which is everyone. He would even offer this to Herod. He would even offer this to Adolf Hitler. He would even offer this to Osama bin Laden. He would offer this to the sex trafficker, to the rapist, to the murderer, to the child molester. All these people. And people are wondering, if God is so great, how can He let bad things happen to good people? God is so great that even the worst of people are offered the same grace. See how big God is. That if they would just repent, that if Herod repented, if he would submit himself to the true king, he would have been in heaven with him. Now I want to point something else out in Mary's song. Because notice how she credits God and it's not herself. She doesn't point to herself. And starting in verse 48, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. And He spoke to our father to Abraham and to His offspring forever. How many He's are in there? There's a lot. This is all about God. Mary is clearly pointing to God. Sometimes people are thinking like, oh, Mary's all that. She is. Mary's awesome. I'm, I don't want to take anything away from her. But you can clearly see that she's pointing to God. And so how often do we make Christmas about ourselves or our family or our children or whomever when it's really about Jesus? It's about Him. It's His birthday being celebrated. Right? I mean, it's also my wife's. But we said happy birthday to Jesus today before we said happy birthday to my wife. 
it's really about Him. When we celebrate Christmas, it's about Jesus. And so often we make it about family. So often we make it about kids. Kids opening toys and looking at their stockings. Or, oh, family, thank God for family and all this stuff. It's like going to a birthday party. It's your birthday. And everyone's just kind of around saying like, hey, thank you for family. And you're, you're like standing off in the corner like, I thought it was my birthday. Like, isn't that why all this is here? Isn't that why we're celebrating? And, and, and you guys are just kind of thanking each other. And then you start giving presents to each other. And you forgot to give presents to the guy's birthday. It's his birthday. And he's just like, dude, the party's for me. But you guys are just kind of all celebrating out there, giving each other gifts, and talking about how happy you are for each other. And what about me? Like, this was thrown for me. How often do we do that? We just make it about our kids and like the toys that we want to give them or like our family. Oh, thanks for our family. It's such a great thing. And I don't want to say that family and kids are not, but whose birthday is it? I mean, have we forgotten that? Have we just kind of pushed them off to the corner and say, hey, we'll see you next year when we have a party for you again, but don't invite you and don't, don't give you gifts. and you know, so It's just kind of weird. And so the first words off of Mary's lips are, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. It's the first thing. Now, have you ever thought about the life that Mary lived? We already kind of reviewed how Jesus' life was, and it just wasn't that great, right? None of us would probably pick that out of a multiple choice. Like, suffer your whole life or have not. You know, you probably wouldn't check that. But then, have you ever thought about Mary's life? Because if anyone was to have a life on easy street, right? If anyone was to have like a cushy life, a really nice life, a comfy life, one that's just like, shower me, give me my mani-pedis, my massages, my facials, like just, just treat me nice, you know? Don't you think it would be Jesus' mom? If anyone in the world was going to have a good life like that, don't you think it would be God's mom? Now, some of you are like, what? God's mom? Jesus incarnate's mom, not like God, you know, Yahweh mom. God's Yahweh does not have a mom. Oh, I have to tell you this story. (laughs) We're driving, and so my kids are talking about creation. And so my two older daughters, five and three years old, they're, they're kind of going back and forth like, God created dogs. Yes, you're right. God created dogs. And they're like, ah, God created dogs. And then they're like, God created airplanes. No, He didn't. God created people who created airplanes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. God created cats. Yes, God created cats. God created churches. Um, he created people who built the churches, but the people as a church, He created that, but not the church as a building. Yay! And all this kind of stuff. And then I heard this. God created Jesus. And then I, and I was like, I need to hear this. And then like, yeah, God created Jesus. And I was like, yay! And I was like, uh-uh. You heretic children. 
So we had this conversation and I was letting the theology out on my five-year-old and three-year-old as to how Jesus is not created. Jesus has always been. Jesus incarnate was created. And so Jesus as the flesh was created, but Jesus has always been. And we're talking about this stuff. And my five-year-old goes like, cool dad. So off we went. Now my kids know about this stuff. The theology starts early in my house. Anyway, where am I? Magnifies. Let's just go that. Magnifies. That's how the song became known as the Magnificat, right? Because that's the Latin translation. Magnify meaning to make great. So is God made great or do we make ourselves great like Herod? I'm going to make myself great by just making a lot of stuff and, and you know, making some really cool stuff, by the way, and, and you know, getting a lot of power and making a lot of money and doing that stuff. Who's being made great in your life? So is God made great or do we make ourselves great? Who, who or what do we make great? Do we make our problems great? Because what's occupying your mind right now? What occupies your time? What occupies your efforts? What are you dwelling upon in your head? A relationship, finances, uh, whatever may be, different problems, different issues. That tells you what you are magnifying is what's in your head, what you dwell upon, what you think about all the time. Who do you depend on? What do you depend on? Where does your trust lie? Where do your thoughts lie? That tells you what you're magnifying. And we can tell where Mary's mind was. We can tell where Mary's thoughts were. They were on the Old Testament Scriptures. Right? You talk about a person with big problems. Teenager who was betrothed, so not married. She's pregnant. And back in that day, that is not a good thing. She could be stoned to death for that. It's not like nowadays where it's like, oh, she's pregnant, oh, we want to take care of you and provide you with resources and everything. Oh, you know, we're going to do everything we can to take care of you. Back then, it's not like that. Back then, as you're pregnant, we're going to knock you out. You're a disgrace. Get out of here. Leave. Why do you think Mary had no place to go? She's already been kicked out. She had no place to go but an inn? You mean to tell me that she had no family? She can't knock on mommy and daddy's door? Hey mom, dad, can, can I come in? I'm pregnant and you know... It didn't work like that for her. Or her auntie. Or a cousin. Or big sister. She's out. You are pregnant and you're not married. You are out. That's what she's facing. And not only that, think about Joseph. He's betrothed and so his future wife is pregnant and you're thinking, who's the other guy? Right? You're not thinking, Holy Spirit. You're thinking, who's the other guy? And you're also thinking, I don't want any part of that. Because forever I'm disgraced. I can't do what I'm going to do anymore. I, if I'm with you, we're both kind of done. We're not accepted in society anymore. This is their life. Everywhere that they went was like that. Why do you think people were throwing jabs at Jesus where he went, you know, like, who knows who your father is? Isn't your mother Mary? Isn't your father Joseph the carpenter? Like they were just throwing these jabs at him all the time, right? And so, this is a teenage girl. 
This is not a woman who has a pension plan or investments or homes. and things. This is a teenage girl with nothing. No reputation. That is shot. She is kicked out of her home. As far as the future, there isn't a foreseeable one for her. Everywhere she goes, she's going to be labeled as that girl. That girl that got pregnant by who knows who. And through all of this, she's able to magnify God. Not the problems that she has and not the problems that she can foresee happening, but she's magnifying God. She's not magnifying the problem. She's not magnifying, what if Joseph doesn't marry me? What if Joseph doesn't accept me? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? The only person that understands is her cousin, Elizabeth. And she accepts her. So she goes to cousin Elizabeth's house and says, I have nowhere to go. Come in here. I know the same secret. The angel talked to me too. I'm pregnant. And I'm old. It's awesome. And the babies are inside like this. And so they, they understand. But people outside don't understand. And it's pretty incredible, right? That the spiritual world was so much more present in the mind of Mary than what was happening in the physical world. In the physical world, it looks terrible. The physical world looks just absolutely terrible. But she recognized that God was working in the spiritual world, that He was operating, and she was going to be part of that. And it led her to rejoice. And this wasn't just lip service, right? This is magnifying God and glorifying God. This is more than just talk. She lived it out. She followed through on what she said and what she thought throughout her life. She carried that pregnancy all the way through. And she kept Jesus. She raised Jesus. And she followed Him all the way to the cross. As a mom, as a parent, can you imagine that you gave birth to your child you you followed them throughout their life and you are there at their deathbed can you imagine and so there she is at the foot of the cross within an earshot of hearing his last breaths of that gurgling of a last breath can you imagine hearing that from your child And she's there, and she's within earshot. And how do we know that? Because Jesus goes and tells John, who's within earshot, and Mary's right there, take care of my mom. When I'm dead, take care of my mom. And so there it was, right? And how did Mary spend her last days? It wasn't like, forget it, God. You gave me this baby and all all the way, and now he's dead. Forget it. I don't want any part of this anymore. You know, she, she's in there. She spends her last days in Ephesus. John's taking care of her. Ephesus is in Turkey. Mary's house is still there. People say all this stuff is made up. Are you kidding me? Archaeology just proves that it's not made up. You're so dumb. If you think that this stuff's made, you're so dumb. Her house is still there. And to glorify God is more than just songs and words and thoughts. It's when people look at you. And there's no other explanation than there must be a God who created a person like you. Because when you look at Mary, I mean, aren't you at awe? I mean, there's no other explanation that that had to be God. Because what teenage girl would choose that life? 
to carry all the way through and to have this life of poverty and to have the finger pointed at you your whole life and have people talking behind your back and saying you're disreputable and who knows who the father of Jesus is and that you had to go through all of life watching your son get beaten to a pulp where he's unrecognizable, hanging on a cross, dying, and seeing him die. Who would pick a life like that? And yet you look at her life and you say, glory to God. That's the only way. How else can you explain that? Now wouldn't it be awesome for people outside of our church to look at each one of us like that? To look at our church like this? What if everyone in our church lived lives that people could only credit God for? That I can't believe that they came through that. All that family tragedy and yet look at them. They're sane. They aren't hateful to people. They aren't angry. They're not taking their stuff out on people. They're not addicted to something. They're not running to the bottle. They're not running to sex. They're not running to drugs. I mean, look at this. This is crazy. How do they do this? Wouldn't that be awesome? What would our church look like if we all truly glorified God? I think that most Christians and churches in the Bay Area have a bad reputation. And if you have any doubts or if you don't believe me on that, just go out in the street and ask somebody, how do you view Christians? And I think the first thing you'll get in my head is like, you'll get a really strange look and some people might smile and you, I think you're going to get a lot of poison. How people view Christians and the church in the Bay Area. I think you're going to find that most people who claim to follow Jesus make very little difference in other people's lives. And I think you'll find that most churches that claim to follow Jesus make very little difference in their community's lives. Just most of the churches, most Christians are very insulated. They kind of take care of their own selves. They kind of do their own things. We create our own Christian music. We create our own Christian t-shirts. And we create our own Christian conventions. And create our own Christian breath mints. I'm not making that up. Testaments. Have you heard of those? Christian breath mints. I mean, we're making those creating our own uh, jacuzzis, right? The jacuzzis. And all different types of stuff. We're just creating all this stuff. And I think the people we're in relationship with, directly or indirectly, know that we, Regeneration, are a good church. They know that we, people within Regeneration, are good people. That we're good Christians. Wouldn't it be awesome to be much deeper that the glory would be given to God. Let's not slack out on our effort. We've worked so hard to be in this community and to build a good testimony. Let's keep working hard, but let's do more than just physically serve. Some of us are really good at serving. We're really good at getting out there and doing things physically. But what about the spiritual battle? Because I think that's what's at hand here with Mary. I think Mary could go with the physical stuff pretty easily. She just kind of plotted through. But spiritually, that battle must have been so hard, but yet she glorified God and she magnified God. I think for us, it's a good testimony as to how we should be in the spiritual world. How are we battling there? And so, let's bring up prayer, for instance. Every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m., we have prayer in the cafe. On average, there's about six of us. I don't mean to get down on you. I'm getting down on you. Six. Out of the whole church. And so join us in our prayers for our community, for people's lives, for those connect cards that people are filling out. 
Next Saturday, we're going to have prayer to bring in the new year. It starts at 7 p.m. and goes through the morning. Join us. Join us as we seek God, as we pray to God, as we intercede for our community, for people. The following Saturday, we, we, we have a day where we're just going to be walking through our neighborhood. We've done this all year long, once a month. We've walked through different neighborhoods in Oakland. This is the last one for the year, and we're ending in our neighborhood. Join us. And how often are you praying for yourself? You eat every day. You sleep every day. You, you probably take vitamins. You work out. You, you do all these things to take care of yourself. You work so that you get money and you do all these things for yourself. How often do you pray for yourself? What are you preoccupied with? Mary had a bunch of things she was dealing with. Now what are you dealing with? Relationship issues, money issues, jobs, school, health, people. What, what are you dealing with? Faithfully pray for those things. And, and if you want to share them with us, and for us to pray about them, fill out that Connect card and put it in there, and we'll be praying for those things Tuesday mornings and, and Saturday and the other days that we're praying. And you pray for people in your life. Things that they're going through. Pray for things you're concerned about. Nations, people groups, wars, governments, uh, our city, the violence, the crime, all these different types of things. All the different things that we can intercede for as Christians. Now when we close in prayer, we often say in Jesus' name. Why is that? I think part of it goes back to this magnifying and rejoicing in God. Not because the problems that we face, that they're trivial problems or that they're insignificant problems, but because we are mindful that God is there. That His presence is there. That no matter how big our issues are and our problems are, we know that Jesus is there. That He's risen and He's coming back. God is the one who's making things right. Jesus had already come over 2,000 years ago. He resurrected, He ascended to heaven, and He is coming back. In Jesus' name, we can pray anything. We know He is with us. And that's something to rejoice about. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for such a wonderful design in your birth. How you, your Father, the Holy Spirit, must have just, in community, designed this and created this to, to be such a magnificent thing to have us reunited with you. And I pray, God, that if there's anyone here who does not know you, who does not know your love for them, your grace for them, I pray that you would soften their hearts and their minds and that you would speak clearly to them how much you so love them and that you want a relationship with them. In Jesus' name, amen.